Would you open with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1? Last Sunday of 2023, the plan, of course, was to be through all of the minor prophets by now. But once again, man plans his ways, the Lord directs his steps, and we got close, but not quite. We will finish Zechariah and Malachi in January, and we'll be back to those next week. But this is a unique opportunity for us to gather in one service at an appropriate time of the year uh, where people reflect on priorities, where they reflect on commitments And we live in a world that is anything but clear when it comes to commitment. And as a church, we cannot afford to be unclear about our commitment, about our priorities. Uh, We are a people who have been given a very particular mission, and we need to be focused on what that mission is. When it comes to the mission of Chapel City Church, we say that we are calling all people to receive, demonstrate, and declare God's transforming grace through Jesus Christ. But those cannot be words that are in a bulletin or on a business card. Those have to go beyond the page, and those have to settle into our hearts, and we have to understand what they mean and what we are supposed to be about, and we have to move together as one body and one mind and one spirit. Otherwise, those will always just be nice words that should define a group of people but will never define us. So that's what we're going to spend our time working through today, those core characteristics of what make us a church those defining things that set our mission and our priorities for Chapel City, uh, not just over this next year, although we will give particular emphasis to them this year, but over the course of however many years God entrusts to us as a body here at Chapel City. And so if you're not there already, find your way to Ephesians 1. We'll be flipping through the first two or three chapters of Ephesians today. But I want to read Ephesians chapter 1 beginning in verse 3. This is how Paul opens his letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray. Lord, I... We're a people who are easily distracted, whether it's the next amusement, the next entertainment, the next iPhone, the next vacation, the next promotion, the next thing that fills up our calendar. Uh, It's a struggle for us to stay focused. Lord, help us to be a people who have clarity on those things that we need to have clarity on. Help us to be a people that are united around the core truths of the gospel and then who are committed to act on those truths. Lord, I pray that Chapel City would be found faithful, fruitful for as many years as you give us. And Lord, we recognize that we need your help to do that. We ask that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word. We ask that you might strengthen us and equip us so that we can walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Lord, we pray that we would never be a church that gathers for the sake of gathering, a church that programs and sings and studies for the sake of doing religious things. Lord, I pray that we would be a transformed people who live transformed lives for the glory of our Creator. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I am deeply skeptical of mission statements. 
and all it takes is a quick Google search to figure out why. Mission statements are common to every business. It is a corporate requirement that you have to have one, and it seems like they're a corporate requirement that they are either extremely long, extremely short, and no matter what, they cannot make any sense. They're just filled with corporate language that doesn't have any real meaning, and so you can see that I bring that skepticism into church mission statements, right? I mean, after all, isn't the mission of the church simply to make disciples? And of course, that is the mission statement of the church. So the church shouldn't need committees. The church shouldn't need board meetings and budget amendments to try to come up with the perfect mission statement. We have it. Make disciples. There you go. Walk out the door and do it. Uh, the problem with my way of thinking is that that purpose, that mission to make disciples as biblical and as true as it is, uh, might not be ultimately the most helpful way to phrase it. Because when I read make disciples, what that doesn't answer for me is what I mean by that. In a world that is so full of Christianese terms and biblical illiteracy, we can no longer take for granted that the idea of making disciples means the same thing to everyone. And so there are a hundred different ways that you could say the mission of the church is to make disciples. What I want to do today is unfold the way that we say that we are making disciples, that Chapel City Church exists to make disciples by calling all people to receive, demonstrate, and declare God's transforming grace through Jesus Christ. That is what we are to be about, that clarity. And again, in a world that thrives on a lack of clarity, because a lack of clarity sells books and pamphlets and sequels and all those things, I want us to be a church that has clarity. And if you're a visitor, I want you to have clarity. I want you to have clarity today about what we are about. If you are a regular attender, I want you to have clarity today. When someone comes up to you and asks you, what makes your church distinct? What does your church believe? What is, what is the heart of your church? I want you to have not just a concise statement, but I want you to have an understanding of why that statement matters, why it's grounded in biblical truth and how we're supposed to go about acting on that. So what we're going to do today is we're going to open up our mission statement, and we're going to start with the idea of receiving, and receiving in particular gospel truth, and then we'll look at demonstrating and declaring. But let's open this up, and in Ephesians chapter 1, let's look at receiving gospel truth, and let's start this by making sure that we have an understanding of the foundation of the gospel. Because we talk about the gospel, but the gospel, sadly, is one of those words uh, that can move to the place where it no longer has any meaning. We know the word gospel. It means good news. We know that the gospel is important. We know that we should preach and teach the gospel. But we live in a time and place where there's no depth to the gospel understanding. So what is the gospel and where does it begin? Well, we have to understand that the beginning of the gospel, the foundation of the gospel rests on the person and the work of God. Look at verse 3 with me again. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. we got to stop there for a moment. The gospel does not begin with man. When we talk about the priority of the church, when we talk about the centrality of the message of the gospel, it does not begin with man, no matter what our current culture tells us. See, our culture, even our Christian Western culture, is content to talk about God, but only in the sense that God is there to really ultimately meet the needs of man. How many of us have heard the gospel presentation that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? And is there truth in that statement? Absolutely there is. But ultimately, it is tragically shallow. Because while it's front-loaded with the word God, it's really all about you. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, and that is where it ends. And that gospel is not a saving gospel. 
See, when you and I talk about the gospel, we have to understand that the gospel begins with a God who is about his own glory, and rightfully so. When we talk about God, we are not talking about our culture's conception of what God is. He's not an impersonal force like in Star Wars. He is not a a distant deity. He is not like the fun uncle, the big guy upstairs who kind of wants to do nice stuff for you and does good things when he can, but, you know, he can only do so much. When we talk about God, we are talking about the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are talking about the ultimate, infinite, all-powerful God who created and sustains the universe. Before God, there was nothing. He created all things. He depends on nothing. There's nothing that he needs from his creation. When we talk about God, we are talking about a being who is perfect in all of his attributes, perfect, complete in everything that he is. God is holy and he is perfectly holy. God is just and he is perfectly just. God is love and he is perfectly love. All that he is existing in perfect, complete perfection at all times infinite in knowledge, infinite in power. And that God created and filled His creation. He made man and woman in His image. And by virtue of being made in the image of God, mankind has inherent dignity, beauty, and value. But there were obligations. God calls mankind to be holy as he is holy, to be just as he is just, to be righteous as he is righteous, to speak truth as he is truth. See, the gospel has to begin with an understanding of the perfection and the power of God. Otherwise, you and I have no concept of where we fit into this. And I want to read verses 4 through 6 really quick because they cause a lot of people more than a little bit of an issue. Verse 4 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And there are some words in there that people struggle with. Words like choosing and predestined. And so often we start to get into gospel fights before we even have gospel clarity We don't need to do that. We don't need to start working through labels. We don't need to take a 10-part sermon series to figure out what God is saying here. We just let the Bible speak for itself. That God who formed and filled all things is also perfectly sovereign over the salvation of his people. But why should that surprise us? This holy God who made all things is not surprised either by man's belief or man's unbelief. God is not shocked that people do not grasp and run toward that gospel. God is not pleasantly surprised when people come to him. This God called his people for a purpose. That's what that's saying. And all of this is to the praise of his glorious grace. See, we get so locked into the details and fighting about the words that we forget what it says in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. We talk about salvation, and even when we get it right that this salvation is from God, and it is, then we then move immediately into what it does for us, and it does. The blessings of salvation are eternally, unimaginably glorious for the believer. But do you know what one of the primary results of our salvation is? 
The glory of God. Do you realize that God saves sinners to glorify himself? Your salvation, my salvation, our eternal inheritance makes God look all that much more glorious. As an almighty, holy, infinite God stoops down and saves ruined, reckless sinners who were locked in rebellion against sin, it is to the praise of his glory. The foundation of our gospel can never be us. It can never be man-centered. The foundation of our gospel is the God of that gospel. The God who begins, the God who moves through that work, and the God who sees it to completion, and the God who has brought all glory at the end of that process. And when we understand that foundation for the gospel, the holy God who formed and filled his creation, then we can move on to this desperate need for the gospel. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness of his grace. We see words like redemption, forgiveness, trespass, and we begin to see that there's a problem. We know that God created. We know that God made Adam and Eve in his image. We know that they lived in perfect fellowship with him, but we also know that this whole thing is broken, that Adam and Eve sinned, that in the garden when temptation entered the picture, rebellion followed soon after, and where sin comes, there is death and separation. That is what sin does. Sin always separates, and sin always kills. Do not ever forget that. It has from the beginning, and that would be tragic if it was just an isolated incident, but we know that sin moves through generation after generation. That each and every one of us, every man, woman, and child ever born is impacted by that same scourge of sin. What is sin? Sin is everything that violates God's standard. Is it every word? It's every thought. It's every action. It's every intention. It's every feeling that is contrary to what God calls good and right and holy. And so you and I have this eternal problem And that is that we are isolated from the God who made us and called us to be in fellowship with him. That our sin has not only brought us death, but it has brought us a gap, a separation that is so infinitely wide that we could never cross it on our own. And so when we talk about the need for a gospel, we are not talking about a need that says you can clean your life up. When we talk about the need for the gospel, we're not talking about a gospel that says uh, you can make your life better, more pleasurable, more livable, more tolerable. We're talking about addressing the infinite need of salvation, addressing the need that bridges that gap between you and the God who made you. Because in him, in Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood. What is redemption? Redemption is the idea of buying something back. If we were to get truly desperate, we go and we sell something to a pawn shop. But if we ever want to reclaim that item, it costs us something. We have to pay a price to buy that back. Sin brings death. The wages, the cost, the price of sin is death, and it always has been. From the garden, from the very beginning, the wages of sin is death, and that price must be paid. But God, in his infinite mercy, allowed Jesus Christ to stand in the place of sinners. Isn't that what we just celebrated at Christmas? That at the right time in human history, the eternal, infinite, holy Son of God took on flesh, was born of a virgin in Bethlehem, lived the perfect, sinless life that we were called to live, but died the death that should have been ours. That on the cross, Jesus doesn't bear the wrath of Rome. He doesn't bear the hatred of the Jews. That on the cross, Jesus Christ bears the wrath of God poured out against sin. 
and that on the cross, He makes it possible that He takes our sin and that we are covered and clothed in His righteousness. In Him, we have redemption. We have a purchasing back through His blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses, the forgiveness of our failings according to the riches of His grace. See, that richness, that grace of God is at the heart of the gospel. The idea that it's not something we earn, not something we do, not something we buy, not something we work our way back toward, but that this is what we are calling people to receive as a gift freely given, lavished on us by the unimaginable grace of a holy God. A God who paid the price that we couldn't, according to the riches of his grace. And that's when we take on his righteousness. And Paul talked about that in verses 3 and 4. He predestined us for a purpose, and that was that we would be holy and blameless before him. See, on our own, we're not holy. On our own, we're not blameless. But God saved us for that purpose of being made like him. And that wonderful hope is where we move on to. From the foundation of the gospel that rests in who God is to the need for the gospel that talks about our sin and the work of the Christ on the cross, and then we have to understand the wonderful living hope that we have in the gospel. That because Christ died, we have hope, but we have a living hope because he didn't stay dead. We don't celebrate the death of a martyr, the death of a Savior. We celebrate the death and the resurrection of our Savior. We're moving towards Easter rapidly. It'll be here before we know it. We talk about the fact that three days after he was crucified and buried, Christ rose again. And that's not just the happy ending to a fairy tale. It's not just a more fair end to an unfair story. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that his sacrifice was accepted. It proves that the payment was made in full for our sin. And it provides for us a living Savior, someone who who is at the right hand of the Father who ever lives to make intercession for us. That's what the author of Hebrews says, that Christ now has this consistent ongoing ministry of pleading our case before the Father, not pleading our goodness, but pleading pleading his blood shed in our place. And so you and I gather together and we gather together to worship and we sing and we pray. And when we pray, we pray knowing that God hears because we have a perfect mediator. We don't pray through a priest. We don't pray through a pastor. We don't pray through saints. We pray knowing that the one and only son of God bears our names before the father. What else gives us hope? Look at verse 6. I'm sorry. Verse 8. These things which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Do you know how much hope there is in knowing the ultimate plan that God has? One of the more terrifying aspects of this world is the fact that I don't know what's going on 100% of the time. I do not like things that I am not in control of. And yet God, in the richness of his mercy, has made known to us what his will is. As God saves his people, 
he tells them what the end result of that salvation will be. Not only that he will return and rule and reign over his creation, but that his people will be with him forever. And how do we know that that's true? Our hope goes on in verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We have this thing called an inheritance, a guaranteed future hope. In verse 13 it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Not only has God told us the end result, not only has God told us his plan and our place in that plan, not only has he told us that in the end we will be with him and he will reconcile all things to himself, but he has guaranteed our part in there. Can you imagine if the gospel that we preached depended on us to lay hold of it in the end? If God said, I'll save you, but you better be good, I'll save you, but you have to do everything you can to maintain that salvation. How exhausting and hopeless would our lives be? But that God who calls us to himself then seals us with his Holy Spirit like a letter sealed until the exact time that it needs to be opened. A guarantee, a down payment, a promise that what he has begun, he will be faithful to finish. And that guarantee is good through any circumstance or any situation until we acquire possession of it. And all of this, once again, to the praise of his glory. Our salvation from beginning to end brings glory to the God of our salvation. And how often do I want to make it about me? See, that's what we're calling people to. Does that sound like a gospel that is worth rejoicing in, that is worth receiving? If we don't understand that gospel, if we don't have clarity of that gospel, uh, to be honest with you, if the gospel was as limited as God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, then it's no wonder that we struggle to share it. But if we're telling people the gospel of the great high and holy creator of the universe who sent his son to die so that we might be reconciled to right relationship with him. If we're talking to people about a gospel that speaks of God redeeming a people for himself, if we're talking about a gospel that has a future guaranteed promise of an eternal glorious hope, then suddenly it becomes something that is worth calling people to receive. And I love that idea built into our mission statement because we are not calling people to be good church attenders. We are not calling people to be better tithers. We are not calling people to be active ministry participants. We are not calling people to be good husbands, good fathers, good wives, good moms, good children. All of those things might happen and should happen as God matures us in the faith. But primarily, we are calling people to receive this eternity-shaping gospel of Jesus Christ. And if we ever move away from that, then all we are is a church of nice trappings that has no eternal value. So we have this gospel, this message of hope and restoration and, forgive us, and forgiveness, and our mission is to call people to respond to that gospel. And so we say we are calling all people to receive that transforming gospel of grace through Jesus Christ, but 
There's that transforming aspect in there. And so we move from receiving to demonstrate. We are calling all people to receive and demonstrate that gospel transformation. What do we mean by demonstrating? How do we do it? Well, let's first talk about the ability to demonstrate. To demonstrate is to declare something in in a visible way. It's to make it known. To demonstrate is to show somebody how to do something, to model something for them. I want you to turn the page to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's read verse 1 and 2. And you were dead in the trespass and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Prior to the gospel, this is what Paul says, you were dead. You and I were not sick in our sins. You and I were not in a sin coma. You and I were not mostly dead like in the princess bride, but with a little bit of hope and the right amount of wishes, everything just changes. Now you and I were spiritual cadavers laid out on the slab of eternity with no hope of resuscitation. And the problem is dead men can't act, not even when it's in their best interest. If I were to die of some deadly disease, and I'm laid there in the morgue, dark I know, but go with me on this, and the cure was placed right next to me, even though the cure was within reach, how much can a dead body do to lay hold of the cure? Nothing. Zero. Do you understand the complete helplessness that marked us before the gospel? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, a few verses down, makes that clear. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. So we're absolutely clear about that. That's built into our gospel message, that there's nothing we do to bridge that gap. No good work that we do, no good thought that we think, no good book that we read, no good check that we write that brings us into right relationship with God. But you'll notice that Paul doesn't end there, that once we have this gospel obtained by faith, Faith in Jesus Christ. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. We're not our own. We're the good work of Christ. But we are saved for a purpose. We are created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of of good works. In other words, God calls dead men and women back to life so that they might live no longer like dead men and women. God did not save us to leave us as he found us. God saved us so that we might be useful for his purposes. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. And they're good works that God prepared beforehand. In other words, God does not save me. And then I say, God, thanks for saving me. Now I got it all figured out. Just watch what I'm going to do. I'm going to blow your socks off. I'm going to make you so glad you chose me. So glad you saved me. Just get out the well done, good and faithful servant stamp and be ready to pop it on my forehead. This great God who calls us into this beautiful salvation is so great and so awesome and so powerful that he calls us and saves us and then he shepherds us along a path and says, see what I have for you. I've given you good gifts and here's the opportunity to use them. 
I've put people in need in your life, and here's the strength to meet those needs. And so that God who accomplishes our salvation then directs us along the path and empowers us and sets up these good works for us to do. Why do you think that is? Because then who winds up getting the glory? God does. If God saves me and then I do all the good things, then Matt looks pretty good at the end of the day. But if the God who saved me then says, Matt, these are the things that I prepared beforehand for you to do, then even those good things that I do end up bringing more and more praise and glory to God. And so we do these things with His power through His Spirit that He planned for His glory. Now, where were we before? The back half of chapter 2 has this great contrast. If we ever think that we are something, if we ever think that we have the ability to do really, really good stuff on our own, and it's an easy trap to fall into, some of you are incredibly gifted, incredibly talented, and it is easy to fall into the trap of, I am able to do certain things on my own. Look at what we were before Christ in verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's who we were. Separated, alienated, strangers, with no hope, without God. But what did Christ do? Verse 13, now in Christ you who are far off have been brought near. Verse 14, we have peace. Verse 15, we are a new man. Verse 16, we are reconciled to God and the body. Verse 18, we have access Verse 19, we are fellow citizens, members of the household of God. Uh, On our own, we, we can't forget that on our own, we do nothing but fall short. But through God, we are able to do not only what is good, but ultimately what brings Him glory. So what does that look like? If that's the ability to demonstrate, if we recognize that the ability to do good things only comes from God, and we can't get those two backwards. This is not, I do good things, therefore I am saved. The reality is that we are calling all people to receive, and you cannot demonstrate until you receive. But once you receive, you are called to demonstrate, to do, to work out that glorious salvation that you've been given. But what does that look like? What does the call to demonstrate look like? A hundred different things. See, if we were to move on to Ephesians chapter 4, we would see that call to walk in a manner worthy of our call. That is demonstrating gospel truth. If we were to move through Ephesians chapter 4, we would see this beautiful call to unity. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. That is an outworking of the transformation of God in our life. If we were to move through Ephesians chapter 4, we would see this command to transform speech, speech that builds up instead of tears down, that speaks the truth instead of lies. That is a result of that gospel transformation. That is a way that we demonstrate gospel change. If we were to move into Ephesians 5, we would see the biblical pattern for marriage. Husbands and wives engaged in relationships that treasure one another for the glory of God. That is how we demonstrate gospel transformation. 
We would see parents that parent to the glory of God, servants that serve to the glory of God, leaders that lead to the glory of God, followers who follow to the glory of God. That is how we live out gospel transformation. That is how we demonstrate the gospel change. In this coming year, we're going to be working through the book of Galatians. We'll see that we're called to be a people who are characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's how we live out gospel transformation. The one another's in the New Testament. The problem is not that we don't know what it ought to look like. I think the problem is often we don't expect that anything will actually change. I think tragically, we've been culturally fed a gospel and culturally modeled a church that is so weak and so impotent that we have no actual expectation that the gospel will demonstrate anything in our lives. I think at best, we expect to come to church on Sunday and get through it without killing each other. Maybe. You understand that one of the biblical implications of that heart-transforming gospel is a life-transforming gospel. We are always going to be a people who struggle with sin. This side of glory, sin will always be a factor in the equation of our lives. But God has left us with a hope for real, biblical, demonstrable change. If you put those things together biblically and rightly understand them, there is no hope of demonstrating gospel change without receiving the gospel, but there is no expectation of receiving the gospel and then not having the ability to biblically demonstrate what that gospel does in our lives. Not because we're good, not because we're smart, not because we pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and try harder and work harder and do better, but because the God that was powerful enough to rescue us from our sin is powerful enough to enable us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. And all of that's very helpful to understand as we work through the third and final action in our mission statement. We're a gospel-centered people. We are calling all people to receive the gospel. We are calling all people to demonstrate, to live out that gospel. And finally, we are calling all people to declare that gospel. Well, what does that mean? What does that look like? Let's first look at the call to declare. Uh, If you wanted to move on in Ephesians, you wouldn't have to go very far. Chapter 3, verse 7, Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. To me, though I'm the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is plan of the mystery hidden for all ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
That's a lot, but Paul says there's a mystery that's been made known to him. This saving power of God that reconciles men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation to himself, that there is not a Jewish faith and not a Gentile faith, but that there is one faith, one God, one hope in Jesus Christ. There is one saving plan, and Paul says he's made and made a minister of that gospel. And that the grace that was given to him was the grace necessary to preach that gospel. In other words, Paul doesn't carry out that message to the nations on his own strength. Paul is not an effective evangelist because Paul is a brilliant orator or writer. Paul is not an effective gospel minister because of anything that is inherent to Paul. Paul is an effective minister of the gospel because God works his power through a limited vessel. And you and I have been given that same mission, that same great commission when we went through the gospel of Matthew. We saw that in Matthew 28, that we are left here to make disciples of all nations. We could look through Acts 10, where Acts in the early church, we could look through Romans 10, where Paul says that you can't call on a God that you don't believe in, and you can't believe in a God that you haven't heard of. I think I want to direct us to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, because I like the way Paul phrases it there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, this is what Paul says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So you can see that transformation of the gospel there, right? That radical change from death to life, from one thing that's passed away to something new. And he says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So that's how he phrases it. God reconciled us through Christ, and in doing so, he gave us a very particular ministry. He gave us the ministry of reconciling others. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have this ministry of reconciliation. Paul says that we're called to show others the same reconciliation that we've been given. And Paul says it's as if God was making his plea through us. Do you want to know how God calls people to himself? It is through his church. Not the building, not the pastor, not the pulpit, but through you, his church, that God is pleased to call men and women, children, to repentance and to place their faith in Christ. It says, we implore you on behalf of Christ. Chapel City, that's the bar for our gospel proclamation. It better look like pleading with people to come to Christ. So I have to ask, when was the last time that my gospel proclamation was to the point of urgency so much that it looked like pleading with people to be reconciled to God? But can there be any other way? If God is who we say He is, if heaven is as glorious as we say and sing that it is, if hell is as real and terrifying as we say and the Bible says that it is, how could we do anything other than plead with people, implore people, beg people to come to their senses and place their faith in this God who is the only means of salvation? 
Does our gospel proclamation have any urgency behind it whatsoever? Or is it just something we add on when it feels convenient and when we feel comfortable enough in the relationship doing it? This will not be a part of our DNA as a church until we adopt this biblical urgency to our gospel call. So how do we declare? How do we do that? What does it look like for us as a church to declare God's transforming grace through Jesus Christ? Well, one thing is that gospel will be a part of everything that we do. When we open up God's word, that message of salvation had better come out clearly as often as we gather together. And not just here. That gospel message has to go out in all that we do. It has to be integrated into our youth groups, into our children's Sunday school curriculum, into our adult small groups, into our Sunday school classes. We can't stop there. When the, when the world around us comes through our doors for any reason, the gospel ought to be what they encounter, whether that's vacation Bible school or boo fest or heritage days or whatever it is, whether we are serving the community practically in physical ways, and those things are good. Our ministry in this community cannot begin and end with an open building, an air-conditioned place during the summer, a safe place to go for families on Halloween, a nice place for kids to go on their summer vacation so that mom and dad can have a couple hours of break. Everything that we do has to focus on that idea that we are here and entrusted with precious few opportunities to proclaim that life-saving, eternity-altering gospel of Jesus Christ to the lost around us. You know that that's the purpose of those transformed lives? Then in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says this, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the, way, on the day of visitation. That gospel transformation that leads to demonstrating the gospel is actually part of our gospel declaration. Because the reality is, the most tragic and common way that I, under, that I undermine the gospel is with my own disobedience. The biggest hypocrite you see in a given week is the pastor who gets up on Sunday and preaches about something that he has spent hours studying. And then I assure you, goes home and fails regularly in that during the week. But how precious an opportunity to talk about the gospel that brings forgiveness. To talk about the glorious God who doesn't use perfect messengers, just faithful ones. Broken vessels that allow his glory to shine through. I really desperately want us to be a church that has outreach as more than a word on a banner. But that we see that as the ultimate logical end of all that we are and that we do. How could you receive a gospel like that and not have it radically transform you? How could it radically transform you and then not impact those around you? See, one naturally follows the other and none of it relies on me or my own strength. But it does require our faithfulness. 
And it does require us to speak. Very common quote, and we've all heard it. Preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. Almost always attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Two major problems with that. Number one, uh, he never said it. Um, and nobody associated with him, nobody who wrote about him, nobody who lived in that time uh, around him ever attributes that to him. And number two, it's thoroughly unbiblical. So there's that. The gospel that we preach is necessarily verbal. People might see you, but the goal is never to see you, never to see me as a good person, a nice person, a person with a put-together life and family and schedule. The goal is that any good they see in you immediately moves to the opportunity to declare the goodness of your Savior. So what do we do with all of this? How do we wrap all of this up? I want to suggest that over this coming year, this is going to take a whole body commitment. Good time to talk about commitments, New Year's, right? We have a broad statement. We have kind of this general 30,000-foot view, and we're going to do a lot to fill that in. We'll have our One Thing Sunday School class that will fill in some of those details. We'll work through the book of Galatians, which does a lot to put practical feet to these basic things that aren't basic. They're simply foundational. See, we say basic, and we think we've grown beyond that. How about foundational? And if we fail to build on that, then we don't really build anything of lasting value anyway. But the wonderful thing is that as we commit ourselves to these things, these biblical truths, this biblical mission that God has given us, we are guaranteed to be successful if we measure success the right way. Because the success or failure of this church has nothing to do with budgets and nothing to do with numbers and nothing to do with ministries. Either way, this church is not failing if we shrink. This church is not failing if we struggle with money. This church is not failing if ministry positions are left unfilled necessarily. And on the other side of that, this church is not successful if we're bursting at the seams. This church is not successful if our budget is overflowing. This church is not successful if we have wonderful programs and polished people up here on any given Sunday. This church's success is measured only by its faithfulness. And as we are faithful, God, as it turns out, will give us exactly what we need to do exactly what he has called us to, to the praise of his glory. And so church, that's what we've been entrusted with in the coming year. To be on mission and to be faithful to that mission. And to trust that the God who has always been faithful to us will accomplish his good purposes through us through our weakness, through our need, through our trials, through our struggles. He's going to work through the praise of his glory. So, three things. We will commit ourselves, one, to gospel clarity. In a world that is afraid to be clear about anything for the sake of offending anyone, we will be clear on the gospel. That mankind has a universal need And that that need is only met through belief in Jesus Christ. That faith is not found, that saving faith is not found in many ways, in many efforts, in many avenues, in many different paths. But that only Christ saves. Secondly, we need to commit ourselves to gospel change. And that's a scary one. 
Because committing ourselves to gospel change not only recognizes that we have areas that we need to do better in, but it recognizes that we often make these changes in community. That growth in demonstrating the truth of the gospel happens as we sharpen one another. And that means that you and I are going to have to commit ourselves to being vulnerable enough to allow others into our lives who might help in that growth. And there's risk involved when people know that you're not perfect. We say it. We all know we're not perfect people. But we are a people with walls. And so as we radically commit ourselves to gospel transformation... Let's move forward with the understanding that God does make changes and that this body of believers is one of the powerful tools that God can use to make that happen. And finally, we are a people who need to commit ourselves to the gospel call. That God has entrusted us with the mission of making disciples and that does not mean that we are a comfortable group of disciples on the corner of Ventura and Arneal, hunkered down waiting for him to come again but that God has entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation, that we are called to be a pleading force in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in this community, and around the world that pleads with people to be reconciled to the God who made them through the work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you've blessed us with a work to do, and honestly, Lord, it's an overwhelming work to be a people who understand and live in light of that gospel is daunting. To be a people who see the need to reach out to people can be daunting. And on our own strength, Lord, it would be impossible. But Lord, what a marvelous truth it is that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness. You have given us the ability to live changed lives because you have brought us from death into life. We are new creatures in Jesus Christ made alive to live no longer as dead men and women, but as sons and daughters of God. Lord, strengthen us for the task that you've laid before us. Give us clarity, give us unity, give us peace, and give us hope as we move through this year. And Lord, may everything we do be done for the praise of your glory, for you are worthy. Amen.